Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Tony Hayward, uh, I guess, took himself at his word that he was going to get his life back here. It's clear that he has. Uh, but what's important to us is that the people in the Gulf get their lives back. It's not so easy for them to just uh, take a weekend away and uh, forget about everything that's happening down there. They're dealing with it every single day. They're going to have to deal with it for uh, the foreseeable future. And what we think is important is that BP takes its responsibility to uh, make sure that they're doing everything that they can. That was Bill Burton, a White House spokesman, commenting on Tony Hayward's decision to spend uh, his Saturday sailing last weekend, which is called Absolute Outrage in the United States. I'm Ed Crooks. Welcome to the latest FT's weekly energy podcast. We're going to be talking some more about BP, that story which just keeps on going with all its many twists and turns. And we're also going to be discussing a new gas row between Russia and one of its neighbours, this time with Belarus. And I'm joined to discuss these subjects by uh, Carol Hoyos, our chief energy correspondent. Hello. And by Michael Peel, our legal correspondent. Hello. And by Neil Buckley, our East Europe editor, who will be joining us later. So, Carola, again, BP kind of never fails to surprise us, does it? This latest move by Tony Hayward going sailing, of all things, being out there on the clear blue water, apparently enjoying himself on Saturday. BP have been saying he's been working very hard, he deserves a break, fair enough. But still, this was another huge public relations own goal by BP, wasn't it? Uh, Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. Tony Hayward seems to have a completely tin ear when it comes to public relations and and the images certain actions and, in fact, certain words portray. So, yeah, from a PR perspective, it was terrible. And, of course, the White House jumped on it immediately. Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff, was on the Sunday chat shows uh, making fun of him for it. More seriously, it also sends a pretty bad signal to Tony Hayward's own employees. One of the things he has to do is keep morale at a at least decent level, given what's happened. And I talked to uh, one business school professor who specializes in these kind of things. And he said one of the most important things for a leader to do in this kind of crisis is to have the shared impact, the shared experience with his employees. And it doesn't really seem like sharing the experience when you know, you're know you off on a sailing boat, you know, sailing's the rich man's sport. And so from all angles, it was it was a misstep. Do you think maybe he's given up? I mean, is this a sign that Tony Hayward thinks that within a few weeks or, or months, certainly, he's going to be out of the company? And so, in, in a sense, there's nothing he can do anymore. I think it's more likely, and perhaps I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, that his family said, look, you've been away for two months. You've had incredible pressure. You've done everything you can. And you promised your son X number of months ago that you would you would join him in this race. You know, it's time for you to fulfill your family obligations. I think that might have been the way the conversation went. I hope he wasn't that cynical that he, he thought, well, that's the end of it. He is still the CEO of BP. Yeah, there are big questions of how long he will be. He and BP maintain that he wants to, at the very least, plug the well and, and not be seen leaving the scene of the accident while the oil is still spilling. But yeah, clearly his days are numbered. 
And he does formally remain in charge of the company. We've had some details out today from BP of the way this new organisational structure is going to work, where Bob Dudley, who's the managing director with responsibility for the Americas and Asia, who is himself, of course, an American indeed, a Mississippian, um, I think is uh, talking in the New York Times today about how he used to uh, swim in the waters of the Gulf and used to fish there and, and feels instinctively the kind of the importance of that region to the inhabitants of, of the area. He's going to be in charge of the day-to-day cleanup, but still, it's very clear, he's going to be reporting to Tony Hayward. Yes, that's right. And one of the arguments is Tony Hayward had to come back for that reason. There are other things other than the spill, which remains his top priority, that he needs to do, including reassuring partners, whether they be oil-rich nations or other partners they work with day-to-day, other oil companies, and his investors and his employees, that BP is going to get through this. So he's really a man who needs to be in two places at once. At the moment, he seems to be absolutely nowhere. He's cancelled his first public appearance, which was supposed to be yesterday at a conference with national oil companies. And he's kind of, it seems, gone into hiding. And what else are we hearing from BP this week? Then there's been a lot of talk about disposals. The company's under tremendous financial pressure. There's talk about them arranging new uh, bank credit lines, possibly even having a bond issue, although it really doesn't look like the right time to do that at the moment, given the, uh, the market price of their bonds. And the other thing they're talking about is disposals. There's now a plan, I think, for possibly up to $20 billion worth of disposals over the next couple of years. What do we know about what they might be selling? Well, we don't know very much. I don't don't think they've made the final decision of what they're going to sell. They say they're going to sell non-core assets. Analysts expect that they will sell assets which come with a relatively large capital expenditure. The head of the North Sea had to come back. He was also in the Gulf of Mexico to reassure his folks in Aberdeen and on the platforms out in the North Sea that they're not going to suddenly find that BP is pulling out of the North Sea. So at the moment, we're hearing more about what they're not going to sell than about what they are going to sell. And certainly they do have a lot of assets, whatever it is I think analysts would reckon, the upstream assets alone, $150, $160 billion worth, something like that. So if they're looking to find $20 billion from disposals, they ought to be able to find that somewhere. Yeah, they can. Thank you very much. So uh, another aspect then, the story that's been moving quite fast in the past few days, is the um, the legal implications, particularly a lot of interest in this fund, the $20 billion fund that was announced uh, at the meeting between BP's senior management, including the chairman, Carl Henrik Svanberg, and President Obama. BP committed to put $20 billion up for uh, meeting the costs of people who have lost out as a result of the spill. That was a very broad agreement. A lot of the detail had yet to be filled in. We're now learning a bit more about it, aren't we, Michael? And some of the the details are now becoming clearer. Yes, that's right, Ed. And I think that the key question that needs to be asked at this moment is quite a tough one, which is that there's been perhaps an assumption that people are going to flock to this fund and and, and dip into the $20 billion. But it's worth uh, analysing that a bit and saying, is that actually going to be the case? Because what uh, Mr. Feinberg has said so far, and this is all still, you know, stuff that's being passed from interviews with him. So there's a bit of criminology because it hasn't been written down yet. But what he's suggesting at the moment, it seems, is that while you can take money on an emergency basis and not forego your right to then launch a separate private lawsuit in the courts, that later on, and for longer term claims, if you dip into this fund, you won't be able to sue in the courts. So in other words, he is going to have to persuade people that it is better for them to go to the, to, to the fund than to go to the courts. And that's not necessarily a proposal that, that everyone is, is going to accept for all sorts of reasons, not least if they think they can get much more money through bringing a lawsuit. Indeed, which given BP's massive unpopularity in the United States right now, might not be a bad bet. I mean, one of the problems, it's juries who often determine damages, right? And there has been huge 
uh, variability, hasn't there, in, in damages? Very, very hard to predict how much might be awarded. There are a lot of factors in play here, all of them very unpredictable, and most of them which which will play out over, over months and even years rather than, than days or weeks. As you correctly say, the, the arguments for bringing a lawsuit include if we can go before a jury, particularly in a state that's been very badly affected by this, uh, like Louisiana, we might get a very big payouts in indeed and that uh, are much bigger than the fund might offer the downsides of going to court are that you then have to prove that BP was was negligent. There's the time cost of bringing a lawsuit, um, you know, which, which can run, run into years if, if the company resists. And then the other point is that even if a jury gives you a very big award, that may not survive the appeal courts and ultimately the Supreme Court if it, if it gets there. And there have been a number of judgments from higher courts that have been more pro-business than, than juries have been. And for, I mean, a big example is the that uh, in Exxon Valdez, Exxon Mobil had a $5 billion punitive damages order slapped on it. That was reduced by almost 90% by the time it got to the Supreme Court, so about $500 million. And that battle, taking it all the, all the way to the Supreme Court, took 20 years as well, didn't it? It was, it was, it was the, the spill was in 1989. That decision was only finally reached last year, wasn't it? Given the choice of uh, $100,000 in a couple of months' time versus $200,000 in five years' time, well that's not necessarily a straightforward decision to have to make. And, and Mr. Feinberg's um, challenge is to devise rules which are attractive to, to, to people who might use the fund and also to you know, use his own heft to say, you know, this is a better option for you. Even though you might think you get more money in the courts, there are some very good reasons for not going to court and going to the fund instead. I guess we'll have to see how that plays out over the months to come, see just how much money is being drawn out of the fund. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. Now, we've grown quite familiar in recent years with disputes between Russia and Ukraine over gas supplies. But in the past few days, there's been uh, apparently quite a serious row blowing up between Russia and its neighbour Belarus. And just in the uh, past couple of days, there have been cuts in the volumes of gas that Russia has been supplying to Belarus. Now, to discuss the issue and explain some of the implications, I'm joined by Neil Buckley, who's the FT's Eastern Europe editor. Hello, Neil. Hello. As I said, the relations with Ukraine... We're very used to this being problematic and and difficult. Belarus, though, generally seen as being much closer to Moscow. There have been problems over oil supplies occasionally between Russia and uh, Belarus. This is certainly the first time I can remember ever there being uh, a problem with gas. What do you think lies behind this? Belarus is certainly uh, a lot closer to Moscow or has remained a lot closer to Moscow in recent years, uh, as you said. But actually, the relationship is a very complicated one. Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, has tended to rather play Russia and the EU off against each other and try to to cosy up to one after the other in order to extract some kind of advantage. His personal relations with Vladimir Putin, the Russian prime minister, are also thought to be fairly poor. Putin and, and Lukashenko don't get on very well. Russia has been very keen for Belarus to join a customs union together with Kazakhstan and Russia, a three-way customs union. Belarus has been dragging its feet a bit on that and insisting that uh, if it's going to do that, then it should have lower prices for Russian gas. And it has been paying lower prices for Russian gas than it's actually contracted to pay with gas. Are there partly economic factors at play here as well, or is it a larger political issue? There's no doubt that Gazprom's competitive position has been quite seriously affected in the last year or two 
Firstly, by the recession, the worldwide recession, which cut demand uh, for gas in Europe very significantly. It's also found that European customers have been seeking uh, other sources of gas. But I don't think this dispute actually has very much to do with Gazprom's financial uh, situation. The sums of money involved are fairly small. It's something like $192 million that Belarus owes um, Russia, according to Gazprom. Uh, which is pretty much small change for a company the size of Gazprom. So I think this dispute actually is more political. It's more about the fact that Russia, and particularly Mr Putin, have got a bit fed up with Belarus's uh, foot dragging over uh, the customs union with its, its, its general failure to do exactly what Russia would like to do and uh, has not been paying the full price for gas for the last five months since the beginning of the year. And they've decided to um, put their foot down and say, OK, we want you to pay up your debt. So it's not great, really, then, for Gazprom's attempt to portray itself on the world stage as a normal commercial company, just like any other any other big global company might be, just seeking to maximise profits and behave in the same commercial way you might see ExxonMobil or Total behaving. I mean, this is pretty clearly a sign that it's taking its orders from the Kremlin. Well, all these things always look very bad for, for, for Gazprom. On the other hand, you have got uh, a contractual partner of Gazprom, which is not paying the price that uh, as specified in the contract. So you might say that uh, Gazprom is entitled to take this kind of action. Uh, and, and Gazprom regularly does make the point that, look, if customers are not paying, any supplier has the right to cut off supplies. The problem is we don't tend to see this kind of dispute anywhere else. I guess we'll know the answer then if we see a decision from Belarus on this customs union, if they do sign up and then suddenly, uh, magically, Russia decides that the, the debt can go away and they're going to resume supplies of gas. That'll be a pretty clear sign that it was really about politics. It will be. I think it's quite possible that the dispute will be solved not necessarily by Belarus paying up in full, but uh, it may well be Belarus giving ground on some other issues like this customs union issue, for example, or uh, it's the, the, the price that it pays in future for its gas. Uh, cheap Russian gas, is, is, we should add, is fantastically important to the Belarusian uh, economy. It really survives on subsidised gas from Russia and also subsidised oil, which it then refines in a couple of Soviet-era refineries on its territory and sells to the West uh, and takes off the profit uh, for that. So it's a, extremely reliant on, uh, on good energy relations or rather cheap energy from Russia. And what about the effects of this? Uh, Belarus, like Ukraine, is a very important transit country for gas supplies uh, from Russia into the European Union. Is this starting to have an effect yet on, uh, on Western European customers? Well, just in the last hour or two, there have been some suggestions from Lithuania in the Baltics that uh, that they've seen a drop in pressure in, in their pipeline as a result of this. Earlier in the day, the European Commission was saying that it wasn't seeing any uh, reduction in supplies to uh, Western Europe. But, of course, this is slightly different from the disputes we've seen with Ukraine in the past, which, which happened in January in the midst of very cold winters when demand for gas was at its height. We're, we're now in June. The weather is, uh, is, is completely different. Demand for gas is low. So the likely impact is a lot smaller. Also, only one-fifth of the total Russian gas supplied to Europe comes through Belarus. So the potential implications for, for Europe are rather smaller this, this time.
Indeed, as you say, I've just been baking outside in the sunshine. I guess the only time I might worry about my gas supply is to power the power station that would then drive the air conditioning. Perhaps that's going to be the uh, the real way that people worry about it. Indeed. Um, so thank you very much indeed for that, Neil. Clearly, the story, though, with with the Belarusian dispute is a fast-moving, evolving story, just as BP is. And if you look further on FT.com, we'll be keeping you up to date with both of those and, of course, many more things beside over the course of the next week when we hope you'll join us again. Thank you also to Carol Hoyas and Michael Peel, and thanks to you for listening. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatroni. I've been Ed Crooks. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.